Um, my question is about doping. Specifically, do you feel it's so widespread? In, uh, in cycling? Yes. Yeah. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got to say, man. Welcome to episode four of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist will put their sunglasses anywhere but their back pocket. If you stick around to the end of the show, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who thinks doping is widespread in cycling. The podcast is on iTunes. We are up to number four. You can go and subscribe for free. You can go and subscribe at semiprocycling.com and clicking on the iTunes picture. Thank you. That's the tour done for another year. And yes, Wiggins smashed the final time trial. It's kind of turning into a bit of injury, though. It feels like if this is going to go on for another few years, it's going to be boring. I came to the tour and Injurain was smashing it five in a row. I think the dude only won one other stage other than every single time trial. Now, I want a bit more of a challenge. I want things to shake up a bit more. I want it to be wide open every single year. But I'm not hating on the dude. I just don't think that he's the great champ that most English fans are going to claim from now on. And I don't want to take anything away from his win, and it's not because I'm Australian, but I'm not sure whether I'll ever warm up to him. It's kind of funny, and it seems kind of similar, a little bit of deja vu, because if you remember a couple of years ago, Cadell took a major popularity hit in the years that he came second, in the two years he came second. But he turned himself around in the last three years. I guess it does help when you just lay everything on the line and you win a world championship, and then you get to move in and do races in that, and then you start attacking. But I think there was a conscious effort to turn his public image around. And can we go do the same? I'm not so sure that he can. It's not that he's gone too far, but I think he'll just hold on to his attitude. He may not even want to turn it around, and that's kind of the, that's kind of my point here. One thing is for sure, though, watching Froome wait for Wiggins at the top of stage 17 showed me that Wiggins wasn't the strongest man in the hills. It was kind of reminiscent of when Andy Schleck was cruising with the group behind Sastra's attack in the 08 tour. That was the tour that... Nobody knew what was going to happen when CSC were going to play their cards. And then finally Sastra attacked. And Andy Schleck, being the young of the group, he just sat in there. He did not have to do any work, but he just sat in that group. And he looked so fresh. And that's what everyone is saying. He's going to be a future winner. So I'm calling the same thing for Froome. I think if some other team snaps him up, that would be a great thing for the sport of cycling. Instead of Sky being so dominant, it would make it a very interesting tour next year. Speaking of next year, I'm going to make a call now. I'm going to the tour next year. It's the 100th year. I've been listening for 20 years. I'm so amped. I'm so excited. I'm planning for it. I'm even learning French so I can go over there and not be a complete idiot. This is the deal. I don't have any details, but I'd love anybody that is interested to get in contact with me so we can try and start working out details and get it happening. I want to plan for it now. I want to get everything down so that we can just rock up and have a great time. We can be the ones on those mountains rocking out. I'm, I'm not going to be wearing Speedos. I'm not going to put an Australian flag around as a cape and try and run next to the, the cyclist. Just giving you a warning. You can do that, but um, I'm definitely going to turn the other way. <laughs> I'm just not into fucking idiots on the course. But, you know, that's just me. So let's talk about the Olympics. We've got five, six days until the road race and the time trial. July 28 is the road race. 
It's a course that, of course, is expected to favour a sprinter, as if England couldn't do anything else. The time trial will see if Wiggins' form can keep on going, this magic form. Overall, I would have to say that the track events, the Australia versus England competition, is going to be the most interesting one in cycling as far as I can see. England has sunk a lot of resources into the track team. You know, they've even stolen some Aussies for coaches. They better beat us to justify it all. That's all I'm saying. All right, now, let's get to the nuts and bolts. And first up... Just picture this, Lance Armstrong spinning his ring off up any given berg in the tour while Ulrich is sitting down and labouring away, making turns through the steepest part of the corners. Can you picture it? It's a classic contrast of Armstrong and Ulrich. You could probably even hear Phil and Paul saying those same things over and over again about their two styles. For me, it defined Armstrong's reign. It was the great challenge between the two riders, but their styles were so different. Does it give you a hint about what I'm going to talk about today? Well, it's Lance's high-cadence, toe-down pedalling style. Toe-down, hoe-down. Yes, I'm going to bring up Lance Armstrong, but you have to bear with me. My stance on Lance is that I don't believe he's the greatest rider of all time. Sure, he won seven tours, and he does have a lot of class, but he was very strategic in his career, and this led to innovation by default, and some of those innovations have stuck around, and they are good for the sport. You know, like basing an entire season around the tour, dedicating 180 days to training the tour, and having a team that's solely there to feed you. I have no doubt that Lance Armstrong is a very thorough individual. I don't know if you get the same feeling... But this is why I want to investigate his toe-down cycling. It has fascinated me all these years because I was taught the exact opposite. I can still hear my coach yelling behind my head to scrape the mud off my feet. Heel-down riding has dominated my riding ever since. My coach would be yelling and screaming at every single person that he was training in the bunch. Now, I'm thankful for this. I'm not having a go at him. It reinforced in my mind, this is the pedaling technique, and this is what I should be doing. And this is definitely what I've done ever since. I personally have also done high-cadence cycling. I think it has something to do with me starting in the juniors and riding restricted gearing. Have you ever ridden restricted gearing? If you have, you would definitely understand what it's like to pedal fast. And that kind of just stays with you in my mind. Is pedaling efficiency overall something you think about? Has someone taught you how to pedal in a certain way? Because in my mind, other than the bike and the clothes of a rider, we can all spot a new cyclist. I would say that pretty much anyone that's been riding for a little while can spot a cyclist and tell you what they're doing wrong. And generally, if you're watching their technique, you're watching it turn to shit under a heavy load. It's not just if the body's swaying and um, they haven't built up enough core strength or whatever, but it's toes-down pedaling. To me, it kind of it has always been the sign of an amateur. So that's when I saw Lance doing it, and he was the only one in the bunch doing it at the time. If you do know cycling over the last 40, 50 years, you can go back to a French guy called Jacques Anquil, Anquetil, the bad boy of 60s cycling. Uh, he was a toes-down rider, and there has to be something about why he did it or you know it was effective for him obviously because he was the first man to win the tour five times and the first one to win all three grand tours in the same year anyway we're looking at lance today and i'm going to look at lance why he used this technique what are the advantages and should you copy him now 
I don't believe you can talk about Lance without talking about Team Lance, a.k.a. the F1 group. Uh, namely, Chris Carmichael or Johan Brunel and co. But the other person that played a role in Armstrong's career, if you know this or not, is Dr. Ferrari. Yes, the controversial Dr. Ferrari. That We'll see how much he actually played out in the next couple of months uh, when, when everything comes to a head, if everything gets exposed regarding... Armstrong's relationship with him, but this guy does have a bit of a checkered past and is an interesting character of the sport. You can't deny that he probably has had a lot of influence on a lot of great writers. I've got a quote here from Cycling News uh, from 2003. I'll pop the link in the show notes, of course, but I just want to read a few bits from it so you get an understanding of where Dr. Ferrari fits into the picture. I met Lance at the end of 1995. Eddie Merckx introduced us, and I think Lance's Motorola team used Merckx bikes. At the time, we, Lance and Chris Carmichael, discussed a major change in Lance's pedalling style. I had already worked with Tony Rominger at the end of his career on this, because I realised that the tendency to use big gears was causing problems for riders, problems with tendons and the back. So already with Tony in the 1997 season, he changed his pedalling cadence. However, he was at the conclusion of his career at that point and wasn't too motivated to continue. With Lance, also because he had lost a lot of muscle mass due to his cancer treatment, I found fertile terrain for this new approach to cadence. So we started already in the winter of 97-98 to work on this change for Lance to use a higher cadence. It became part of the story of Lance. As for the rest, there is all the success Lance has had in the tour, but this is recent history. I've invested a lot of time to work with Lance and his group. That sounds pretty clear to me that he was the guy that introduced it for a few reasons of his own and for a few reasons of Lance, which probably meant that he could sell it a bit easier to Lance and Chris. Carmichael. My assumption is then Chris Carmichael took it from there. He does still preach it to this day. He has a massively successful coaching company. Uh, so let's just have a listen to him on the subject. You imagine a stack of bricks. You can move that stack of bricks in one effort and it'll be very hard to do. Or you can break it up into smaller amounts and move it two or three times but be moving them in smaller segments and you'll actually be able to do it with less effort than moving it all at once. Same thing by spinning up the climbs. Uh, it allows you to break the climbs into a smaller segment and there's less muscle fatigue at a higher pedal cadence. Yeah, that's right. Move those bricks, Chris. Move them. Here's a bit more of Carmichael about where the power delivery is in each pedal stroke. If you take a look at graphs over power delivery through a pedal stroke, you'll see that the vast majority of cyclist power is produced in the downstroke portion of the pedal. Power production falls drastically as the pedals approach and pass through the top and bottom of the stroke. The power of the downstroke is so great that it negates the opposite leg's capacity to produce power during the upstroke. The best a cyclist can do is unweight the upstroke leg or try to get out of the way of the pedal coming up at it. In some senses, the upstroke can be seen as working against the rider. A portion of the force being applied in the downstroke is going to lift the opposing leg of propelling the bicycle forward. 
That is super interesting to me. He's saying that the upstroke has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the power of getting the bike forward. This is kind of a revelation to me because I've always maintained when I'm standing up, if I'm under pressure, that I'm trying to pull my leg up at the same time as pushing down. That's super interesting. I'm just going to leave that there for now. But if we put the, together the whole picture, we can see Dr. Farris suggested it partially, well, he suggested the cadence, high cadence partially because he was already working on the theory of the big gears were causing problems and partially because the Lancer's reduced muscle mass. So the next question is, did it increase Lancer's mechanical efficiency and overall power significantly? Before we can get to that, though, what hasn't been discussed yet is Lance's natural aerobic capacity, which, depending on where you read and who you read, topped out anywhere from 84 to 85 to 93 milliliters a kilogram. Also, he has a large heart, an exceptionally large heart, at around 30% larger than the average person. And this is the big one for me that I didn't know about. He has an incredibly low lactic acid response, somewhere around 6 well, the rating six. I, I've had a, I've had these tests done myself many times. Everyone that's had this test would either know the, the the pain of the pricks in the finger or the pricks in the ear, and that awesome cream that they put on. That uh, if you're touching your ear and then you have to go to the toilet and you haven't washed your hands, yeah, yeah you're in trouble. But anyway, just let's just say that the the rating is six because an average top level rider is between 12 and 20. I think I've sat somewhere around 14 at my max or something. And that's a lot in your system. So he just doesn't produce this waste that can really cripple a rider. The reason it cripples you, from what I've always been taught, is that if you go into the red, it's producing it to shut down your muscles. So as soon as it enters your system, it means that you have to start clearing it. This can take up to 24 hours to clear lactate acid out of your system. Don't quote me 100% on that, but this is what I've always thought. So, you know, always riding under threshold in a race has served me well. All the information about Lance has been, was, or is, published in a study that was published in 2005, and it shows his development over time. It's a pretty interesting study, and I dare say it is quite famous because it is one of the world's most modern-day famous riders. But I'll link to it in the show notes so you can check it out. The study's called Improved Muscular Efficiency Displayed as a Tour de France Champion Matures. In the study, there is a claim of a 9% gain in mechanical efficiency, which could be put down to his pedaling style, and an 18% gain overall. A bit of background on the study, I think when he was in Texas and he was a young rider, he went into this lab and he simply asked them, how can I be a better rider? So from the very start, he was very thorough in being scientific and analytical about his cycling, pulling it apart, putting it back together to try and make these gains. On an interesting side note in regards to training anything over time that's different from your natural style, it is hard. An example of this would be trying to change your time trial position over time. Time trial position is one of those things that sure, once you reduce your front end position and the amount of position that you're actually sitting in and hitting the wind directly, that's going to increase your efficiency. So if you can reduce that down anymore, which generally would just mean getting lower and lower on the bike, that's going to be a big help to you. This is something, I think it took Michael Rogers maybe four or five years. I was at a seminar once, and they gave him as an example 
and it took him four or five years, something crazy, some some crazy amount of time, to get down two, three, four centimeters. It like it wasn't much. We're talking years for centimeters here. So if you can draw the parallel to trying to change a pedal stroke, I'm sure it's just as hard. And if you're trying to do these other things, like really important things like time trialing positioning or whatever, it would take a lot of focused effort to do it. So that's just my side note on changing this stuff. So he could have changed it. I'm not saying he could not have changed it, but he could have changed it over over the seven-year period. But to me, 9% seems like a huge stretch. And a total of 18 overall sounds even crazier. You know, like just putting that down to just efficiency, I just don't see how it can happen. And there's no hard evidence to say that his pedaling technique has an effect on making him a better rider. There is an interesting letter that I found. Uh, It's a letter to the editor. I will link to it in the show notes. It rips the study to shreds. And, frankly, I tend to agree. I found the claims of 18% improvement in his steady-state power per kilogram of body weight, crazy. The measured gains in efficiency in his early years were due to changes in the muscle structure as a result of training and maturity. And here's a quote from the letter. It appears that conventional physiological adaptations to modifications in diet, loss in body mass, and training gains in aerobic power may be equally, if not more, important to Armstrong's performance than the 9% improvements in cycling efficiency. End quote. Pretty fascinating stuff, if you ask me. And it kind of brings us down now to the conclusion. And what can we actually take away from all this information to help you be a better rider, to help me be a better rider? Well, to be honest, nothing. You can't take anything from it. Here's why. Your unique pedaling style is as unique as you are a rider. Just like doubling down on your natural strengths as a rider is, is as much the same as what, what I'm recommending here. So what I mean by doubling down as your natural strengths of a rider is if you're a climber, climb. If you're a sprinter, sprint. It's basically just using what you have, your natural makeup, and strengthening that. If you're going to strengthen things that you're weak at, you will only be mediocre at best. Strengthen what you are strong at and get good at that. We see this at the top level. There is nobody that can be a climber and a sprinter. They're only doing one thing. So I suggest this. And this is kind of what I'm saying when it comes to pedaling. If you do something a unique way and you're producing a certain amount of watts that way, stick with it. That That's what I'm saying. There's a great article that I'll link to and he sums it up like this in direct relation to Armstrong. Many people have examined Lance Armstrong's riding ability and mistakenly deduced that for all riders, the best way to pedal well is to spin the cranks at 95 to 100 RPM. However, let's make a couple of things crystal clear. Number one, the higher cadences used by professional riders is because they are producing as much as 400 to 500 watts in time trial efforts or climbs of 20 to 60 minutes. Number two, recovery from day-to-day tour riding is easier with higher cadence riding. Kind of goes back to Ferrari's point. So riders choose this as a matter of energy consumption. While Lance may ride a time trial at close to 100 RPM, he's sustaining over 450 watts. Lesser mortals can probably only sustain around 250 to 350 watts, so cadence can be significantly lower, say around 75 to 85 RPM. In fact, if you review studies in this area, scientists concluded 
that the choice of a relatively high cadence during cycling at low to moderate intensity is uneconomical and could compromise performance during prolonged cycling. Number three, unless you're an elite rider, it's unlikely you'll benefit from using cadences around 85 RPM. This is the best information that we have so far, and this is four or five years after Lance retired the first time, so this is this is what I would go on. This, this is the latest information that has been tested because of the reason that Lance was so successful and he changed the face of modern cycling training. Basically, it all comes down to just letting your natural cadence find its own level. There's no specific point to training at 85 or 100 RPM if it's not suitable for you. So you'll need to find your own cadence that produces the most power for the associated metabolic cost. This is backed up by another study where they found that the riders were most efficient using the pedal action they felt most at home with. What about the scraping of the mud at the bottom of the feet? It's been something that I've taught new riders when they've come into the sport only, you know, in the past couple of years. For me, I only think about this technique now when I'm doing strength endurance efforts on bergs. When I'm in the saddle using a big gear, I concentrate on being smooth and applying controlled pressure and only moving from the hips down. And now, just to wrap it up, I got one sentence from the trifuel.com website from an article called Cycling Cadence and Pedaling Economy. Pop this in your head, go for a ride, see how it works for you. Here it is. If your legs hurt more than your lungs, increase cadence. If your lungs hurt more than your legs, use a lower cadence. And I think that sums it up pretty much perfectly. So let's get down to the tech hacks or products section. And today we're going to look at, once again, something that's linked to the nuts and bolts, non-circular chain rings. I know you've seen them. I know you're aware of them. Everyone's seen them. I've seen them from the 90s onwards. They're a huge mystery, and they're a massive mystery to me. I've never considered buying one, so this is the thing. Biopace, back in the day, it seemed like a big failure. No one continued to use them. And so it seems, why would a new version of these chain rings come out? What purpose are they actually serving? And it is related to what we've been talking about. Because they're actually trying to combat the wasted part of the stroke, something that is referred to as the dead spot. Because most of us have been using round chain rings for so long, we don't even really feel this dead spot in our pedaling stroke. But the chief benefit of non-circular chain rings isn't the elimination of something none of us feel. Rather, because of the pseudo-elliptical shape, non-circular chain rings concentrate on your pedaling power where your force is at its maximum while effectively reducing the load where your power input is at its minimum. This is exactly what Chris Carmichael was saying, that you have pressure down, that is where power is being produced, and there's no point even putting any upstroke pressure or pulling the pedal up, because essentially it's wasted effort. You're not going to produce any forward propelling momentum with that stroke. So, for example, and there is a study that confirms that the, this brand, the Osymmetric Harm- Harmonic, is the best performing conver- commercially available non-circular chain ring. So this is a non-circular chain ring. It's a weird shape. This is the one that Wiggins uses. You see Wiggins using this. There aren't a lot of people using this. This is kind of why it's a large mystery. 
But say the one that Wiggins is using, it would have, for example, I don't know exactly, but it would have, for example, a 52-tooth osymmetric chain ring, which is designed to work as a 56-tooth conventional ring on the downstroke and act like the equivalent of a 48-tooth at the very bottom of the stroke. That's pretty interesting. If you put it another way, the variable circumference front chain rings can give improved pedaling efficiency by increasing the resistance on the downstroke and easing up across the bottom and top of the pedal stroke. Non-circular chain rings can make pedaling easier without having to think about a new pedaling style, especially when climbing. Which to me is by far the largest added bonus of putting one of these things on your bike. Like I was talking about before, it is very hard to change anything in cycling without a long-term focused effort. And if you could put on something on your bike like this that could just hack the situation, it would be kind of cool. And if, if, someone's, if someone does have one, if someone's used one, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Because there are times when I have trained or tried to train RPM, especially on things like rollers, when I'm just working on efficiency, I would like to know how it affects actually the circular motion of your pedaling stroke. Because we all talk about moving in circles rather than moving in squares or whatever. But we all talk about moving in circles. Does this affect the circular motion of pedaling? This is something I want to know. And this is unfortunately, this is where I fall, fall short for everyone because I haven't tried it myself. But I'd love to hear some feedback. So let's get to the quote from the top of the show. Who is it? It's Johan Brunel. It's hard to tell because he only says a couple of words. But it's at a speech that he does when he's when he was launching his book. It was done at Google. He decided to put the book down. He didn't talk about it. All he did was field questions for 40 or 50 minutes. It's quite fascinating. I will put the link in the show notes. Check it out. There is a little bit of unfair editing in there, just so you know. Okay, and that's it. So, till next time, get on your bike, enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. But uh, I've never seen uh, I mean, a rider on our team who's French and who, who could win the tour. <laughs> it was more a PR move.